HN Podcast with Miller and Dace making it through this summer. Got into June now, so kind of the unofficial start of summer. And, you know, time uh, when we were kids, you'd start getting the college football magazines in late June, and you knew that football season was around the corner. But, of course, these days, calendars are sped up on nearly everything, and that is definitely the case for the release of college football magazines. And one of the first magazines to hit the newsstands is in Steve's possession, and it is one of our all-time favorites. To me, Steve, this one, along with Street and Smith, which is no longer in publication, at least in its original form, Athlon, um, basically, I've been reading Athlon since the early 1980s. Uh, it's been a part of my annual rite of passage into the next college football season, if you will. Um, it's been one of the longest running, consecutive running preview magazines for college football and basketball that there is. So uh, we'll begin this year's look at the Athlon. And it's always full of, I think, pretty cool segments, things that you don't find in other magazines. Each magazine has their own tenor, their own feel. Athlon and Phil Steele's are always two of my favorite. Yeah, and you know, Streets and Smiths is back now. Um, it's it's what Sporting News is called, Street and Smiths now. So um, there's no more Sporting News preview, but Street and Smiths has returned. And this year's Athlons, John, it's phenomenal. It's one of the best college football previews I've ever I've ever read. And I mean, I've been buying these since um, my freshman year in high school, 1987. So we're going on 30 years. And the reason why it's phenomenal, it's the 50th anniversary of the Athlon's preview. And, and so there's a ton of really cool uh, historical stuff in here we'll get to. Um, for people that want to know, uh, their top 25, Alabama, Ohio State, Florida State, Washington, and USC are their top five. Uh, the rest of their top ten, they have Penn State, Clemson at seven, Oklahoma at eight, Auburn at nine, and then Michigan at 10. Other Big Ten teams have got Wisconsin at uh, at 12. Uh, and I think that's the only other Big Ten team they have in their top 25. Hmm. I mean, so, I mean, what, your what, thoughts on that? Washington jumps right out at me, you know, from the first five teams you mentioned. Um, I mean, obviously, USC has, you know, probably one of the two or three best, at least, I think, potential quarterbacks in all of college football this year. Um, very young kid last year did a great job in, in the Rose Bowl and pretty much has set set the bar pretty high in my mind for what he can do this year. You know, as we began to, you know, a couple of weeks back when we looked at, you know, your roster foundation and the, uh, I don't want to call it an algorithm, but the, um, you know, point index that you assign to who is returning what amongst college football. And I'm, you know, I'm certainly not going to wish this season away, but I'm really going to be real interested to see how much that aligns with, you know, how things finish out, even though you weren't accounting for true freshmen, you weren't accounting for schedule weight or anything like that. You know, the Pac-12 was hardly impressive. And maybe Washington and USC are just that much better than everybody else in a league that seems like it's destined to be third or fourth in the in the Power Five pecking order. But I'm a little surprised to see Washington up there. Um, I'm surprised to hear that Michigan's 10th. Surprised to hear that Wisconsin's 12th. But Wisconsin may be a byproduct of a schedule where last year we mentioned several times they had the gauntlet this year that flips for Wisconsin and they are going to be the benefactors of a very favorable schedule. What do you think of those things? I think those are all valid points. You know, when you look at Washington's schedule and I'm just beginning to put together some of the early uh, uh, framework of my annual preview, man, it is tough to find game, a game. Washington's an underdog in on their schedule. Hmm. So, you know, we do have that talent algorithm. It does it does take into account incoming freshmen. It, it does but but it doesn't take into account scheduling and those other things. It's just how they've recruited in the four classes that would make up most of your roster. And Washington's lost about twenty to twenty five points from guys that left early for the draft. Um, and I think they were somewhere right around twenty five in terms of talented rosters. But when you look at their schedule, I, I just don't see – I don't know that I see a game where I can tell you right now they are a definitive underdog. They don't play USC in the regular season, for example. Um, you know, USC schedule is much as difficult like last year's was. 
But the schedule USC played last year, remember, it was very difficult right out of the gate. This year, it's much more spread out. I, I am fascinated by the Texas at USC game week three of the season. Because if you look at, and this is something we will talk a lot about between now and the season kicks off. Tom Herman's MO at Texas, whether it's, uh, or MO as a coach, whether it's offensive coordinator at Iowa State, they go from three wins to seven, win a bowl game. Offensive coordinator at Ohio State, they go from six wins to 11-0. and 0. Uh, Head coach at Houston, they, they go from fringe bowl team to winning a New York Six bowl game. I mean, he is a year one instant impact addition to a coaching staff. And it's so similar to the situation that Harbaugh had at Michigan, where he's a former Longhorn coming back home. The academic and booster culture at Texas as a high-level public university, very similar to Michigan's, where you have to tie into that culture. Otherwise, they're not sometimes, you know, a lot of the people that have been around there for a long time aren't inclined to give you a chance, if you, you know. And, and, and so here's a roster where Charlie Strong could manage a program that could recruit really well. And these were guys that were just, they were ready to win, just like Brady Hoke's guys, ready to take a culture change, ready to make the sacrifice it takes to take the next step. I, I think that's going to be a much tougher game for USC than people think. But when you look at USC's schedule, I don't see too many games where I think they're underdogs. And I think those two teams, with what they have coming back and their schedules, are dramatically better than anybody else. Uh, into the Pac-12. So I think that could be a byproduct of that as well. And when I see Washington is four in here and USC is five, they're essentially saying they think they play each other in the Pac-12 championship game, and, and that's a toss-up. Uh, I will tell you, as I go through these rankings and, I'm, and, and I start thinking about what I'm putting in my own rankings, I think it's going to be hard this year not to have a two-loss team in the college football playoff. I just think too many of the top teams in, in all of the Power Five leagues are playing each other. And and I think the top and I think I, I think this will not be another year where there won't be a, a, you know the most wins, the, the the second best team in the SEC had in the regular season last year was eight. I think I think teams like Auburn, Georgia, maybe Florida, are all going to compete for double digit wins. I think the top of the Big Twelve is going to be really good. With I think you'll see Texas make a huge jump, but you have what Oklahoma has coming back. Oklahoma State has a team that looks a lot like the club that finished number three in the country, whose only loss was to Iowa State on that Friday night back in 2011. I think Kansas State, with the makeup of their team, uh, is set up for a nice little swan, what I think will end up being a swan song for Bill Snyder. Um, and and I, But I think those teams are so much better than everybody else in that league. And I think you see the same thing in the SEC that I think we're going to have, uh, with those top-line teams playing each other now, I think we will have a two-loss team playing in the playoffs this year. And I think that Athlon's rankings reflects that going forward. You also mentioned Michigan. You know, I, I talked to Mitch Light, the editor, longtime editor of Athlons last week, and I asked him about that. And he said that in, in, on their editorial board, who decides this, they have, they have what they call benefit of the doubt coaches. And these are coaches they think that have just shown that it doesn't, that it almost doesn't matter what's on the roster, that their floor every year is nine or 10 wins. And they think Jim Harbaugh is on that list. So if you think that, it makes sense. If you don't think that, if you think you need to see more, then it doesn't make sense. And this is probably be a season that might be, render a verdict on which side of that you're on one way or the other. And then Wisconsin is one of only five teams right now that Vegas has favored in every game in their futures betting for the 2017 season. So I think their ranking has a lot to do with, with their schedule, as you mentioned. You know, Michigan, the game against Florida right out of the shoot, where is that going to be at? That's a Jerry World, actually. Have you ever been there, by the way? I have not, no. Holy crap. It's like being the it's like being in a vertical Rose Bowl, but with a roof on it. I was there last week. It was amazing. Um, so, Jerry World against Florida, um, who lost a ton on defense. Florida did. Um, Cincinnati at home, Air Force at Purdue, Michigan State at home, at Indiana, at Penn State, Rutgers, Minnesota at home, at Maryland, at Wisconsin. I, I think nine and three. So you know we're probably talking about you know seventeenth instead of tenth. So I'm not going to sit here and cry about it. Um, one of the things in Athlon, Steve, that 
we've always really liked is when you get these off-the-record anonymous quotations yeah. from assistant coaches from within your league, and sometimes these things are pretty um, pointed. Now, the Big Ten used to be a lot more pointed until you know Brett Bielema went to the uh, SEC because I think he was the author of a lot of the you know, rather direct and blunt criticisms, but still these things are always a fun read to, to read what anonymous coaches have to say about other programs in your conference. Sometimes they get saucy, mostly they're not, but for when they are, it's interesting. Anything uh, jump out at you this year in the big 10 or other conferences that you think is worth noting? I think they're all really interesting, but you know what? Can I stay? Can I go outside the Big Ten? You, I'm going to let you pick random teams. You, I know you probably want to do you want you want to do comments of all 14. Who really cares what coaches think about Purdue, for example? Well, sure. But 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 I want to start with Notre Dame because they're in, Notre Dame's included in the Big Ten annual. I want to I want to read what the anonymous coaches say about Notre Dame because I think you're going to find this fascinating. Quote: You'll have a lot of first year hires, coach, first year coaching hires, trying to save their boss's job. Offensively, it's Brian Kelly's show, but there's a lot of debate if that's the right move going forward. When they're good, Kelly has a staff that blends with him well. When he struggles, the staff is not on the same page. The players don't play with confidence, and he gets frustrated. You can see the disconnect with their defense especially. Mike Elko, who comes over from Wake Forest, is a great hire for them. Um, Just blow up the 4-3 that they ran and show new looks in Week 1. We haven't seen Notre Dame dominate recruiting like some think. They still should, but this was a good football team in bad situations last year. They've been changing their message up on the recruiting trail to compensate. The fallout from 2017 is now you're installing new schemes on both sides and you're asking a kid to be a first-year savior for his head coach. Their systems broke down last year. Now we'll find out if they're broken. Hmm. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, those those are great comments, and I think that... You know, for me, when I think of Notre Dame, um, and this may be unfair because, you know, I'm somewhat biased uh, against them, not for any other reason that, you know, as I've mentioned before in various, you know, radio shows or podcasts we've done, I just had friends in college who I thought were so incredibly over the top about Notre Dame football. And, you know, you know how much I love Big Ten football, so that's really saying something. Um, so I have always kind of, you know, cheered a little bit when Notre Dame loses because I know that they're all, you know, suffering. Uh, I love them all, but you know how it is with guys in sports. The the Brian Kelly thing, you 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 almost needed a restraining order against you for Brian Kelly uh, as a psychotic lover prior to his hiring at Notre Dame. I mean, he probably was your maybe your first, but certainly your most significant man crush coaching crush of all time you know prior to jimmy coming into to michigan back or bill, for what, snyder. bill snyder as well um but back for what he did at cincinnati and you've often cited it dude made a quarterback change at the half against south florida uh many moons ago and they came out and they just kept trucking i mean the guy absolutely we, we both had a great deal of respect for him but at notre dame Things, for one reason or another, just haven't come together anywhere near what we thought they would for him there. Um, this has been a team that I think, by and large, defensively hasn't had a great identity, certainly not the type of identity that Notre Dame teams of old, um, the good ones, had. And, and maybe it's just we're at a point in time and in an era where, you know, Notre Dame once upon a time was the place that you went when you were a true student athlete, when you were going to look for that amazing education at a school that was very difficult to get into, but you are also a phenomenal football player. Well, the pendulum along those lines has swung and shifted to Stanford, by and large. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that those are the only two great academic schools. There are several in the Big Ten. But you know what I'm talking about. Schools that are incredibly selective. Their admission standards um, are... Their admission standards are a recruiting disadvantage, but they were so sought after... Uh, degrees that that's just where the best student athletes would go historically. Well, that's Stanford now. It's not Notre Dame, and I think maybe that as much as anything has affected their mojo. You, you've, you know, I've both have read articles and, and opinion pieces on maybe Notre Dame needs to lower their standards. I, I just I don't know that we're going to in our lifetimes see Notre Dame be anywhere near what it once was. 
I don't know if that's a, a case of Brian Kelly being off his game or if it's just easier to bring kids in at Cincinnati than it is at Notre Dame. We know the answer to that is yes with regards to you know not being valedictorians or, or honor roll kids. I think that's the biggest issue for Kelly at Notre Dame, and I think that's a Notre Dame issue and not a Brian Kelly issue. I'm really glad you brought up the Stanford angle because – you know, because there are two national schools, they're the winningest programs of all time, and one literally taught the other how to play football. A lot of people think there's there's been a long-running symbiotic historical relationship between Michigan and Notre Dame. But I would actually argue that in this era, the symbiotic relationship is Stanford and Notre Dame for the reasons that you just cited. And you go back to the history, the last time Notre Dame was truly dominant was under Lou Holtz. Well, other than the fact they had a Hall of Fame coach, that was the last time that they took what were called partial qualifiers. And you'll remember the term Prop, Prop 48. 48. It's, yes. They, they, Lou Holtz got you, the, they didn't lower their standards. So if you didn't qualify, you had to sit out. But they, but they would still admit you. So guys like Michael Stonebreaker and others, remember him, okay, who are all American players. Tony Rice was a Prop 48. Now they would not admit they didn't lower their standards for what it would take to play on the team, but for admissions. Now you now they wouldn't even let Tony Rice into school, and Tony Rice would have ended up somewhere running a spread offense in the SEC, probably his native Georgia, Georgia Tech instead. And and I think when when you see when Holtz left, they got rid of the partial qualifier standards, and you'll note that. As Notre Dame began to go downhill in the late ni- in the late nineties, well, that's when Stanford was go- was you know under Ty Willingham was making the Rose Bowl. They bring Ty Willingham in, and you see this trend of Notre Dame coaches: Bob Davey, Ty Willingham, Charlie Weiss. They get quick turnarounds, but then they can't sustain it. Brian Kelly tried uh, to to reverse that trend, and by this point in time, now when Kelly comes in. Harbaugh has established Stanford as the national, private, academic, rigorous football program in the country. And David Shaw has now taken the program Jim built and made it even better than it was when Jim was there. And and what's happened is Kelly, Kelly I, I believe, watching the flash in the pan that his three predecessors had, decided he was going to build it slowly. And it took three years. They were just OK. The third year they went to the, they went 12 and 0 went to the national championship game. Then he slowly, steadily built it back up. That was in 2012. 2015, they are one play at the end, literally seconds of a win at Stanford away from making the playoff that year. Okay? They don't make it. And then last year is the disaster. And I think that there's a couple things. Stanford is now the private school. It's where you go. It's in California. It's more secular. Um, Notre Dame's Catholic identity is not what it was 25, 30 years ago. America's religious identity is not what it was 25, 30 years ago. So, you know, so many great Catholic high schools still play some of the best football in the nation. Well, 25, 30 years ago, there were no matter where you were, if you went to, you know, any any Catholic high school, the pressure on you to go to Notre Dame was overwhelming from an identity standpoint. Well, at the, at the increasing secularization of the culture, it's just not there. Stanford offers every bit the academic um, rigors of a Notre Dame, but in a more secular, diversified environment with better weather. And they have sort of replaced Notre Dame where that is concerned. Now, under Kelly, Notre Dame has shown on a couple of in a couple of years. The other years, they can be an eight or nine, seven, eight, nine win team. And about every three, every third year, they can they can compete at an elite level nationally. But the question will be again: um, Is that okay with Notre Dame? Are they okay with that? Are, because they're not, they're not a perennial reloading program anymore. The previous three coaches were not able, after quick starts, to sustain it. And Kelly has shown that he can get them to compete nationally, but it takes him a couple of years to gear that program up to make it happen. Well, last year they were 4-8. and eight. What do they got to be this year to retain him? You know, I think, so I think, I, I think Notre Dame is struggling to change the fact of what its identity is now. And I think Nebraska is another program that's like that as well. And these are two of the all-time seven or eight greatest programs in the history of the sport. But I think they're both, for different reasons, struggling to find out what their niche is at the moment. If Tennessee and most notably, more notably, Nebraska live in the 90s and you know they smell like Dracar Noir or Obsession – 
N- Notre Dame fans are have a scent of Old Spice. I mean, we're talking 80s. And no, they aren't a program that reloads anymore. And their fans are still um, still expecting things all of a sudden just to wake up one day and we're going to wake up the echoes and uh, cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame again. Those days are done. They're just not coming back. Frank, Steve, if I had a scholarship, I mean, if my kid had a scholarship offer from to go play sports, whatever it was, um, from Notre Dame or to Stanford – uh, and really anywhere else, I, I'm telling them to go to Stanford. I mean the the amount of the amount of dollars. Johnny, ever been to South Bend, Indiana? Pardon me. Have you ever been there? Have, I ever Have been you ever South- been to South Bend, Indiana? You know, uh, two years ago, I went and visited a client who's in Elkhart, and Elkhart is right near <laughs> South Bend. And my travels were going to take me within a mile from uh, Notre Dame Stadium and their campus. I intentionally uh, drove around and made my trip longer as to not set foot on it. <laughs> the reason I bring that up, because I think this is where the loss or, or the de-emphasizing of the religious identity matters, because South Bend, Indiana is a freaking dump. I mean, it is a dump. I've probably been to close to two dozen major college football towns college football university towns around the country and how maybe and and maybe that number 17 maybe it's 24 i don't know what the exact number is i just know that if i sat down right now and rated them all i know south bend indiana would be last now the, the notre dame campus is gorgeous but the city itself is a dump it's outside the it's outside the it's in the shadows of a demilitarized zone known as gary indiana and and so if if you're if if you don't have that religious identity, if, if that's not if that's not what ties people to you now around the country, then there's not another reason to go there. You know what I'm trying to say? Because the location is bad. Yeah, it sounds a lot uh, like Champagne. Yeah, it, 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 that's a good analogy. Well, it's worse, but yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, St- in Stanford, dude, it's it's. I've never been there, but it it looks beautiful from all the photos and things that I've seen. And I've known, I actually I've known probably five or six people who who did go to school there. So, um, but at any rate, um, so yeah, not a surprise. Any any other you know outside of the Big Ten um, comments that you saw worth no, bringing up? No, let's do let's do some of the top teams in the Big Ten, including Iowa. Okay, um, and I'm just gonna we'll do the order that they're in the magazine. All right, so. Michigan is next. Everything Harbaugh does is for a reason. The media falls for his stuff, but every time he's out there in public, he's communicating to his team or to recruits. And maybe sometimes he's sending a message to other coaches. The team is starting to reflect Jim. You could see it more last year. They want to outwork you. That was the whole satellite camp thing last offseason. He wanted to send a message to the SEC and other schools. He will outwork you to make up for any advantage you might have over Michigan. They're scouting opponents better than anyone in our league. They're at Alabama's level of prep and analysis. As they've started to fit talent, you're seeing the effects. It's hard to surprise them. Let's see how they can replace that secondary. It should be interesting because now it's about how these big recruiting classes will translate. Let's see how fast we notice Jabril Peppers being gone. If they're going to seriously challenge Ohio State, that's how you do it, by rolling in new playmakers every single year. How much do they trust Wilton Spate? He loses a lot of targets. Are they going to ask him to do more? Those were the comments on Michigan. Um to me, Michigan's next step, next step in their evolution, and I think mo- a lot of those things are on. They're obviously fairly glowing, but you know the, the Harbaugh era has been you know a success thus far. Um, I would say that the next step of the evolution for Michigan is to get an offense that. Well, I mean, Jake Rudock in, in that year, they, they certainly threw for a lot, and they looked a lot like the Michigan of old where quarterbacks just drop back, throw it down the field 40 yards, and let all-American caliber receivers jump up, make plays, and go score touchdowns. But I, I think that that grounded out between the tackles, you know, a, a Hart-style running back or a Wheatley or every other two dozen great Michigan running backs from the 1980s and 90s, you know, Timmy Bianca, Batuka, et cetera, guys like that and also, you know, play you know pro style offense power football with a play action passing attack game and elite athletes on the outside and and that's michigan and go score 31 points per game 
and play defense the way that they did by and large last year. I mean, yeah, Iowa beat Michigan on a last-second field goal. That was one of the worst passing teams Iowa's had in their in their history. The defense was good. I wouldn't say it was great. Um, and on that night, Iowa won. And Iowa was able to move the ball well enough with Akram Wadley running the ball, but also leaking out of the backfield, which you called for all year for Iowa to do with him. And that just happened to be the game that they stepped up and did it a lot, and it worked a lot. I think Michigan's defense last year reminded me of what we saw in the old days. Now it's time for that offense to make the next step of evolution. Uh, and just return Michigan to being that bully that they were for most of the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I agree with that. You know, it, for me, I'm sitting here wondering if a team that ever had ever in the history of college football, not coached by Les Miles, ever had 11 guys drafted and, and lost three games. But you'll notice that one position, none of those guys were drafted, offensive line. And you saw this against Iowa when they couldn't protect Wilton Spate. They couldn't run the ball to run out the clock. Every game that Harbaugh has lost at Michigan, other than one, his first year against Ohio State when they had that phenomenal team that lost that game to Sparty in the rain, that, that came in like a bull in a china shop with their hair on fire, they named the score in that game. But the other five games that Harbaugh has lost at Michigan have all the same thing in common. Their offensive line could not protect the quarterback and or could not – move the line of scrimmage to run that run out the clock at the end of a game that's what all the other five losses have in common so that's the position to watch for michigan this year is a lot of emphasis has been placed on that they stole away indiana's offensive line coach who has done a, who did a great job for them because they recognize that that's the position that where they still need to take that next step to contend with ohio state here's where it's here's what coaches said about sparty the Spartans are a team to watch for rival coaches, maybe the team to watch. We all want to see what they're going to do, how Mark D'Antonio and his staff come back after that season. They've proven they can build a great team, but can they make it through all of this adversity? Um, the offense needs new ideas. They need to take some risks, do something fresh, different. They're in a rut with play calling. This is a team that should have been recruiting at the level of Michigan, Ohio State, and didn't for whatever reason. You can recruit against them easily. This is a different league than the one D'Antonio started in. Hmm. Yeah, I think, and we've touched on this a little bit, and we probably will do so more as the summer rolls along, but you, you, you can't sit here and call the, the, you know, excluding last year what D'Antonio did the previous six, what was it five out of six years where they won at least 11 games? It's never yeah. happened before in Michigan State history, um, even on a winning percentage standpoint. They didn't used to play all that many as many games as they do now. But that that's the best six-year run ever, and you give them their due. But you also overlay that with that's one of the most mundane six-year runs for Michigan since, I don't know, 50s, 60s, some, somewhere along those lines. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, we, we oftentimes talk, and, and you might be the, uh, the author of this theory, you know, many times in football and basketball, certainly in college basketball, it's kind of almost a zero-sum game for Iowa and Wisconsin. They almost, both of them can't be good at the same time or can't be elite at the same time. It's been rare in football when you'd see Iowa and Wisconsin, both of them with double-digit win seasons. I think it happened a couple of years ago. Wisconsin got theirs in the, in, the bowl, in the bowl game. But it's usually when one is up, the other is down. And for Michigan State's historic run to happen at the same time and dovetail into one of Michigan's rather more mundane runs in the last four decades, I don't think it's a um, coincidence whatsoever. Uh, It's not luck. It's good timing, and and Michigan State made the most of it. But Michigan is improving from that performance, and now Ohio State is what they are. Um, Penn State is also coming back. Point being, in the Big Ten East, with Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan, I just don't see any room for a nine 
or more win Michigan State team on an annual basis, regardless of what's going on off the field for Michigan State, which is an absolute train wreck. And I don't think we've even scratched the surface of the impact of that. Or maybe in hindsight, Steve, maybe some of the impact of that, there were people sniffing around last year during their 3-9 and nine season, and that was affecting them as well. But I, I think the... Um, I think if D'Antonio had an opportunity to move to greener pastures, he may regret not doing so. I think the the run for them is over. Agree with everything you just said. Uh, and you're not even including Maryland, by the way, who has a go-getter coach and DJ Durkin with a big-time resume, having coordinated top defense at Florida and Michigan, has a national recruiting profile, sits there in that DFW in that D.C. area with a lot of recruits, where even if he just gets this, even if Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State come in there and get the best kids, he can at least be competitive at Maryland if he just gets the second best group of kids in that area. So you're not even including him uh, in terms of guys that D'Antonio has to compete against. You're right about the timing. I can only think of a couple of times in the last 35, 40 years that Michigan and Michigan State played each other and both were ranked in the top 10. There's maybe only a dozen or fewer times in the last 35, 40 years that when Michigan and Michigan State both played, they were both ranked in the top 25. Um, because as you've heard me say for years, when it comes to economics, I'm, I'm, I'm Austrian. When it comes to college sports, I'm Keynesian. There's only so many good players. And it's not a coincidence that Tom Izzo's Michigan State basketball program took off after Robert Tractor Trailer's uh, you know, bought and paid for vehicle by Ed Martin crashed in that icy road with Mateen Cleves on a recruiting trip. And that's how he ended up in Michigan State. And that's where the investigation came from. And, and their, their program took off after that. Now, Izzo, God bless him, has proven he's a Hall of Fame coach. But that gave the rocket fuel for his program at that time. And it's also not a coincidence that with Michigan fooling around with who's the AD, you know, campus unrest over who the coach is, um, and, and all the and, and average and about seven wins a year for almost a decade, that that's when Michigan State had their best run since when? Well, since Duffy Doherty was the Michigan State coach in the mid to late 60s, which was the last time Michigan was truly mediocre prior to the arrival of Bo Schembechler when Bump Elliott, the old Iowa AD, was the Michigan coach. So you're exactly right. And and I think I, I think they're in a lot of trouble. And I think it's the off-the-field stuff more than anything else. I think if the off-the-field stuff wasn't there, he has built enough of a program, they have enough of a talent base, enough of a tradition, that he could still be a 7-9 to nine win perennial coach. But that off-season stuff, I think, I think 12 months from now, he's the coach in this league, most likely to not be here next season. I think we're just, we're just going, to, starting this coming week, I think, get because when, when, they've got to go meet with the Regents this week in Michigan. And when you and those are in, in, in the state of Michigan, those are elected by popular vote. So these are politicians, which means they're going to leak what's in there. And so a lot of this stuff, it's been tight lipped. Who's got suspended? Who's with the team? Who's not? The stuff they haven't told us all these months. Well, once they go in there and talk to the politicians on Monday, some of that's coming out. I promise you. And that's going to create that's going to take this media swirl to a different level. And, you know, they've been shielded from this. Because of, you know, Baylor still can't stay out of its own way. There's a new lawsuit there every week. Penn State's guy has just pleaded guilty, and they're going, to, they're going to the Pope for a few months now. But as we get closer to Big Ten media days, you know, uh, I think practice for Big Ten teams starts the, the 30, around the 31st of July. So that's, what, 57, 56 days away, which means Big Ten media days are probably about, what, 40 days away? So... There, all that speculation now, and we're going to find out who's on the roster, who's not. That's going to bring all of this right back up again. And now we've got stories with uh, Terry Mumphrey, the former Michigan State receiver who graduated two years ago and is now in the NFL, came back last year for his pro day and was and was accused of sexually assaulting a co-ed when he came back for his freaking pro day. And when the Houston Texans, who have him, who had him on their team, when they heard this story this week, they cut him. He's all have a job now. So it's got it's getting so bad there now that former players are coming back to campus and getting called for sexual assault. There's a lot of crazy rumors out there about other stuff I'm not even going to allude to because I don't want to get into that. Much stuff has been confirmed. But but I think 
I, I think they've done a good job of keeping this quiet for the last few months. But I think within, for these next two to three months, John, they're going to wish they'd actually gotten this all out of, out of the way in February, March, and April. Because I think this is going to be a major pall over this program heading into training camp. Yeah, my my reason for believing why things have been kept so quiet is because these things are potentially so bad, you don't want to get that stuff wrong. Um, and you're, you're talking about breaking some laws. and Sure. You know, well, here's one thing we know for sure. Curtis Blackwell is the guy that runs in, in Detroit. It's called the Sound Mind and Body Camp. And all the top high school players in that in the eastern part of the state, which is the most talent-rich part of the state, take part in this every year. And for many years, he was close to both the stabs at Michigan and Michigan State. When Michigan's program went into the tank for by, by Michigan standards, D'Antonio several years ago brought him onto the coaching staff, and that really helped. That's how they got guys like Malik Dow and uh, and you know Donnie Corley that for many years would have ended up in Michigan. This is how they ended up getting the players. Well, we know now for sure Curtis Blackwell, who was the coach that was implicated by rumor uh, as, as being somehow involved in these players and the sexual assault investigation. We don't know all the particulars, but we do know this. He's out of a job. That will be hugely detrimental to Michigan State's Detroit recruiting efforts. And the reality for Michigan State is this, John. They don't have to – if they can't beat Michigan – you know, Michigan doesn't have to win Detroit. Because when Michigan has a good coach, they can get players from anywhere. But if they can't at least be competitive in Detroit with Michigan, they have no chance of being a perennial uh, winning. Let's um, let let's hear what uh, the coaches had to say about Iowa, and if it's as boring as it usually is. Good, because man, you want to know how you want to know why you just need to hate Ohio State? Because the only negative thing a coach has said about Ohio State was. Man, I don't know where they're going to play all those defensive recruits they got. Hey, screw all you guys, okay? Dude, dude. They, they, <laughs> That's they, one negative. How are they going to play all those guys? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you look back in our cognizant lifetimes, and, and you know, we didn't follow recruiting as closely in the 80s, and it was a totally different era, they've got it going right now as good as anybody has. They just, they just do. It's, it's. I've never seen anything like it. No, I agree with you. It's, it's a monster program, and um, neither of us are, are huge necessarily fans of uh, of Urban off the field. But I tip my cap to to him and the program they built. They've not, you know, they've not gotten in any NCAA trouble, you know, under his watch. Um, you know, Terrell Pryor and the tattoos was the last time, but that was outside of his scope. So, tip my cap, move on. Don't really want to talk about him because that's all everybody else does. What the coaches say about Iowa. All right, here's the Hawkeyes. As long as Kirk Ferentz is there, Iowa isn't going to change much of anything. They're going to average out at around eight wins a year. Some years it'll be ten, maybe eleven. Some years it'll be five or some years it'll be six. Ferentz, but it averages out to eight. Ferentz is locked up on that deal for a reason. He's one of the most consistent coaches in America at elevating mediocre talent. They shouldn't be able to compete the way they do. You play an Iowa team, and they're going to they're, they're going to want to fight you. The offensive line and their defense especially. Iowa today reminds you a little bit of the old Nebraska, but without the big names. They specialize in tough football players, not stars, for better or for worse. Desmond King will be hard to replace, but they're deeper than you might think in what they can do in the secondary. They're for, they, they, for some reason, always had good corners. This, is, this isn't a Rose Bowl year, but they'll be solid. They just need some stars. No one can explain why they can't win a big recruiting battle once in a while. They have so many tough, fundamentally sound players. They've never had one or two exceptional skill guys, though, to put them over the top against the best teams in the league. I don't think any of that is unfair, and I think it's all right on. I mean, Iowa has seemingly every year they rise up to beat a team they shouldn't likely beat. Last year it was Michigan. Um, and then they will lose to a team that they shouldn't lose to. I, I think how they play allows them to play against teams with better talent because they win the toughness battles in the trenches, but also how they play and their lack of dynamic offensive playmakers allows Northwestern um, and other teams like that to stay with them when Iowa has more talent or historically has had more talent. So nothing there surprises me at all. No, I thought that was pretty much right on the money. I don't know about 
mediocre talent. I mean, I get what I get. I kind of what he's saying, but I mean, you're talking about a program that has done under Ferentz one of the best jobs of putting guys in the NFL. Well, they're 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 one of the five. I think one of the five best developmental programs there is in the sport. But when you look over the course of the last 15, 20 years during the recruiting class ranking era, they probably averaged six and a half or seventh in the Big Ten before it expanded to 14. Um, you know, that's just their lot in life is, you know, right there, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, even some years worse as far as recruiting class rankings. So it's just the way it is. All right, so let's look at some of the historical stuff they got in here. What about okay. Nebraska? What about Nebraska, real quick? We, we don't have to delve too long on that, but I'm curious if you. If yeah, let me. I, I was actually just look. I just had them up because I thought you were going to ask me about them, and then I turned the page. No, so here's I, what they here's they got Nebraska going seven and five, and here's the scouting report on Nebraska. How was Mike Riley managing it? We don't know. They lost three games in the regular season and took Wisconsin to OT, and they're probably on, and and they're probably on the hot seat. I'm not sure Riley and Lincoln is any less strange as time goes on. That job is a lot worse than it was a few years ago, and no one in the administration seems to recognize it. New defensive coordinator Bob Diaco is a huge risk with a huge upside. He's guru more than a coach. When Notre Dame could put up top-level talent out there, he could play the mind games and be all rah-rah, but this isn't that kind of an environment. Some players might buy it, but they're simply not good right now. Against really strong offenses, they fall apart fast. They lose their technique, almost like they play down to their talent, and that's coaching. So far, it looks like Riley hasn't figured out what Bo Pelini could figure out, couldn't figure out, how to make the Nebraska culture happy on offense and recruit to that. This year, they should have a stronger O-line. Get behind that and go. Tommy Armstrong being leaving is a good thing because he didn't fit their scheme, but now they're really young in the backfield. They're not recruiting in Florida and Texas and California the way they used to in their glory years. So the line that stood out to me was, this job is a lot worse than it was a few years ago, but no one in the administration realizes it. Um, I don't know that I get that. What, what, what can you make of that? The job's a lot worse than it was a few years ago. I mean, I think it's the same job that it was a few years ago. Uh, in the Polini era, they still have solid facilities. They still have great fan support. Um, they're just not what they used to be because they don't have that gimmick, and it's never coming back. So I don't know how this job is a lot worse than it was a few years ago. I think we got to define what is a few years ago. That's probably if we're talking fifteen, sure. Yes. If we're talking yeah. any time over the lat, or if we're talking any time since you know, you know, since Frank Solich left, or nah, even after that, price since Bo Pelini got there, I think it's somewhat. F- the, the same job except we're more years removed from the glory years and no kid who's a high school senior now remembers ne- watching Nebraska in any meaningful bowl game whatsoever if I were Nebraska I would really look and push the Big Ten to bring so- to bring in somebody that gives me a natural partner geographically um, that opens up a recruiting uh, major pipeline, particularly in Texas. Yeah, Texas, me. that would be it. And, and, and because because here's the, the reality is, if the Big Ten's not going to do that, then having Nebraska in the league is really a loss leader. It doesn't do any good to have Nebraska as good as Minnesota. It, you know what I'm saying? They mm-hmm. don't, they're not a great academic school. They're not a great demographic so, I mean, you bring them in because you overlook those things because of their national brand and football. But if they're going to be in this recruiting no man's land, which is what they're in right now, they, they can't walk into Chicago, Minneapolis, Detroit, um, you know, play Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland. Regions, they, yeah, re- regions that didn't used to really get many Nebraska football games on TV growing up. Right. Exactly. I mean, Pelini was an Ohio guy, but he never really uh, focused on opening up those sorts of pipelines for them. Um, but if, if they can't really walk into the major demographic centers in the Big Ten and and, and be looked at as, as an elite program. So if, if they're going to be as good as Minnesota, if they're, if they're going to 
with all due respect to Iowa, but if, if, if they're not going to be able to beat Iowa as they have in the last couple of years, then I don't know what they add to the league. I, I don't. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit like if you're going to draft, if you're going to draft, everybody used to get on the Colts all the time for not drafting guys on defense. Well, if you're going to draft Peyton Manning, you didn't you didn't draft him to, you know, uh, win games 21-17. You know, I mean, that's what you got. I mean, I'm watching as we're taping this. I'm watching an, an NBA Finals game where the team with 106 points is losing by 28 points. Now, you and I grew up in an era with Pat Riley and Chuck Daly that you had to almost play a game and a half in an NBA Finals to get up. 106 points <laughs> because that because after after the magic showtime man there were, yeah no layup rules and everything else but what did the what did the warriors do i mean they got they went out and got themselves steph curry clay thompson they said you know what we're just gonna outscore teams because you can't stop us we're gonna accentuate our positive just and we'll go get kevin durant more offensive guys i bring that up in the context of the point of bringing in nebraska if you're gonna overlook the fact they're a, a you know barely average academic school uh, and they don't bring a major demographic area with them, then it's their football brand. Then you have it. You are, if you're the Big Ten, that you have, you have every bit as much interest in maintaining that brand as Nebraska does. They, they're no use to you at seven and five. And and I think whatever comes next in this next round of, in this next one, I think will be final round of musical chairs here in the next seven eight years. That's got to be, I think, the number one priority for the Big Ten. Because you, you don't have a demographic branding anchor in that Western division. You just don't. Don't. Yeah, just bring in Texas and Oklahoma, and then we can ride off, and you don't have to rearrange it until we're long dead. Um, we're about, uh, let's see, about... 46 minutes into this one. Wow. So why don't you give us uh, a few more highlights of sections of the magazine that you like, and then folks can go out and uh, buy it for their, themselves. All right. Well, I mentioned it's their 50th anniversary. So here are their – I've got their top 50 players of the last 50 years. And we'll just – you know, we, we, we won't go through all 50 of these, but we'll go through some of the top guys. Herschel Walker's number one. I'm not sure he'd be my number one. But I'm okay with him there. I, I wouldn't argue too much about it. You? Herschel Walker, last 50 years? Yes. Um, Boy, that's a great question. I, boy, him or Bo Jackson, um, Bo's probably in the top five as well. No, I can't, I can't say. If I've, got, if I've got somebody in the top five and I don't have a definitive number one, then I'm not going to argue with you too much. Barry, 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 Barry Sanders, though, too. I'd have Tim Tebow number one. Oh, Tim Tebow is. Um, I think I've just given you my top five. Yeah, Tebow's six. That blew me away. I, I, I would have had him number one. Barry Sanders is number two. Archie Griffin is number three. The only two-time Heisman Trophy winner. Earl Campbell is number four. I don't know how you put Earl Campbell ahead. Uh, yeah, I of don't. Tim Tebow. No, Hell, I wouldn't put Earl Campbell ahead of Vince Young, frankly. Um, Bo Jackson is number five. I certainly wouldn't put Earl Campbell ahead of Bo Jackson. Tim Tebow is six. Hugh Green, remember him at Pitt, is seven. Vince Young is eight. Deion Sanders is nine. Tony Dorsett is ten. Now I'm going to play Homer here for a second. Charles Woodson is 11. Explain to me how he's behind two guys in Deion Sanders and Hugh Green, defensive guys, neither of whom won a Heisman, neither of whom won a national championship. When I asked Mitch Light that question, you know what he told me? Hmm. One guy on their one guy on the panel that voted on this, and it's some it's names of some writers you would know: Ivan Mazel, Stuart Mandel, Tony Barnhart, some of the guys that voted in this. He told me one of their voters didn't even put Charles Woodson in their top fifty players. Hmm. Um, I would not have those guys as part of my panel next year. Yeah, you turn in you you listen. You don't even have you don't have to. You can put them at number fifty for all I care. But if you turn in a ballot of the best 50 players of the last 50 years, the only guy predominantly on defense to win a Heisman's not on your list, delete your account as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, okay? I mean – Tommy, Tom, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I, I don't want to take you off. I was going to – the Earl Campbell thing, I, I don't get it. I mean, Tony Dorsett is number two all-time rusher at Pitt. I get that. Ron Dane's number one overall. Yeah. Um, but I'm going down the list here – of all-time running backs, 
I'm down to 26, no Earl Campbell. Um, I had to go all the way to 60th for Earl Campbell. 60. Yeah, I would not. Earl Campbell doesn't belong ahead of Bo Jackson. He doesn't belong ahead of Tony Dorsett. I'm with you on that in terms of even running backs. Yeah, it's insane. I don't think he belongs ahead of Tim Tebow and Vince, Vince Young on the on the player list. Agreed. Vin, Vince Young is a great pull, no doubt about that. Uh, Tommy Frazier at number twelve. I'm okay with that. You okay with that? Yeah. Reggie Bush is at fourteen, and Dominic and Sue at fifteen. I thought that was way too high. Well, myself. it's 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 a lot more difficult to quantify, but when I think of individual disruptive forces over the last 20 years of football defensively and Dominican Sue is at or right near the top and frankly that's the only time Nebraska's defense has been worthy of being called black shirts in the last 15 years all because I of forgot, him I've, I forgot their last appearance in the Big 12 championship game and Dominican Sue had four and a half sacks six tackles for loss it was filthy dude <laughs> Orlando Pace at 16 I think that's a good poll I yeah, think that's good that is Randy Moss at 22. Uh, O.J. Simpson is number 20. Come on, man. He, he's only number 20 because he murdered a couple of people. Otherwise, he belongs higher than that. I think we would both recognize that. I was just going to say, O.J. is probably a top 10 player, and, and he's a transformative player. Marcus Allen, the first player ever to rush for 2,000 yards in a year, is 27. Lawrence Taylor's 28. Cam Newton is 30. Steve Entman, remember him at Washington, uh-huh. how great he was going to be, and mm-hmm. then he got hurt early in his pro career. If you Folks, if you want to know who Steve Entman was, if you're younger, just um, go, just put in the mic, the endomic and Sue tape, and imagine it's a white guy. And that's what Steve Entman was at Washington in the early 90s, just absolutely unblockable. They're, him and Sue's stats, very similar, um, was the first overall pick in the draft, I think in 92 or 93, and he just – had injuries and never panned out. Otherwise, he was unblockable. Brian Bosworth, 32. What do you think about Elway at 33? He never played. He never led Stanford to a single bowl game. I was going to say, he, he he was a great athlete, and obviously he was a, a, high, a high baseball pick and utilized that to, you know, not go where they wanted him to go. But that – he, I don't remember him being much of a college player at all. I, I think he gets that because he was more John Elway in the NFL. You know, here, here, here's the name: Troy Davis. And the, when you look at what he did as a running back for Iowa State, and yeah, I'm localizing this a little bit, but I'm going to give him his due. You're talking about Iowa State football in the mid 1990s. They were horrible. And is he still the only player to do two thousand yards back to back years? Has anybody else done that since? Um, I don't know. I don't I think don't anybody know. else has. There, there can't there can't be too many. He's not on the list. But I'm how saying you, I'm, how, I'm saying how, when, when 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 everybody knows that's the only thing you have on mm-hmm. offense. I mean, last week you mentioned um, that you don't think any team. You know what was it with Iowa that they averaged uh, five yards per play and they had two thousand yard rushers? The five yards per play on offense is horrible, yet they still had right. two thousand yard rushers. You're talking about Troy Davis, who rushed for back to back seasons of two thousand yards, and he was the only thing they had. I got to tell you, there's several guys that are going to be on that list that I would have Troy Davis in over them. I think that's a good pull on your part, man. And and when we when evaluating Elway, here's the thing. You got to look at who's behind him, like we did with Earl Campbell, okay? And we found several people behind him. We thought, no way. So here's who's behind John Elway. First of all, why is Jerry Rice, who played FCS college football, why is he on this list? Does Randy Moss play FCS as well? Yeah, but well, but Marshall, Marshall isn't moved, now, but it was. No, then. Marshall had just moved to Division One when he was there with Chad Pennington. They had just okay. made the move. So why is Jerry Rice on this list? I don't know. You, Ricky Williams ended college football as the all-time leading rusher. How the hell is he behind John Elway? Do you know? No, I don't. He's not on the list. But by the way, the guy who is currently the leading rusher in college football history, Ron Dane, not on the list. Okay? So Jerry Rice is on the list and John Elway's on the list, but Ron Dane's not. And they're both ranked ahead of Ricky Williams. You mentioned it already uh, that Troy Davis is not on the list. Listen, Mike Singletary was phenomenal as a middle linebacker. Uh, had a school record of tackles at Baylor. 
But when I think of the you know the the best linebackers in the last fifty years, to me I don't think he's Chris Spielman or who is on the list or Brian Bosworth. He's also on the list. I, I didn't I didn't necessarily get that pick. Um, I'm so, I was shocked Danny Werfel was at forty eight. I mean you could when you look at career stats, Heisman Trophy, national championship. Danny Werfel's had is one of the f- top five qu- college quarterbacks in the last fifty years. Frankly, Doug Flutie's forty ninth. Until I could have made the case, I could have made the case until, until the era of uh, Werfel and you know and spread offenses with, with with Vince Young and Tim Tebow. I could have made the case Doug Flutie was the best quarterback in college football the last of this fifty year era uh, up until we got to the air raid spread offenses we see now. I think that there's a pretty good case for that. I don't know what you think, but I think there is. Well, he's forty ninth on the list. Yeah, with regards to Elway. Pass completions, all, uh, all-time rank, and, and let me finish because there's a gotcha here. 20th pass completions, career. 21st pass attempts. Uh, pass completion percentage, he ranks 23rd. In touchdowns responsible for, he ranks 14th, so I'll give him that. In um, total yards, he ranks 25th. Oh, by the way, those rankings that I just gave you are for the Pac-10 all-time, not for the mm-hmm. nation. He's a top... He's a debatable top 20 Pac-10 all-time quarterback. He does not belong on that list. Keith Jackson, remember him, the tight end for Oh, Oklahoma, sure, yeah. Who basically, he, he, caught, he basically caught four five passes a year against Nebraska. That was his whole career, twice. Somehow he's on the list of top 50 players. So, And number 50 is Desmond Howard of Michigan. So Chris Spielman's 44. Was Keith, Jack- I think you and I could come up with a better list. Yeah, so I so do. so Jackson, he was what mid eighties. Yes, Keith Jackson, nineteen eighty four to nineteen eighty seven. Um, his he he caught sixty five passes in his career. I don't know. Played for a wishbone team, the yeah. Jamel Holloway teams. I mean, he was a freak and athlete. He played for the Dolphins. Um, or he was a great NFL pro, all pro tight end, but. He basically caught like six passes in his career against the, that beat Nebraska Eagles, when rather, they were yeah. one versus two for three years in a row. That's that's his whole career essentially. Yeah, but those are fun. All I right, mean, one more thing on here. That, that right there, that, you, we should have saved that. That would be like a whole podcast next week. <laughs> that would we you, we could come up with a better list. I think you know. And and, and, and Tebow six week, is, we should is assign bad. that to one another. What's that? What's that? <laughs> I, I missed what you said, or I'm sorry. T- Tebow, easily top five, and I, I agree with you that given what he did in the conference that he did it and the things that he'd done for a career had never been done, he's definitely inside your top 25, and I have no problem with him at number one as far as the best college football player of all time. All right, so next week, you and I are going to come up with our own list. Okay. I'm probably going to do 25. You probably have enough to go fifty, but yes, we'll do it. I'll, I'll give my top twenty-five. You gotta, here, here's what you need to do: you need to do fifty so that we can combine them together. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll do fifty, and we'll and we'll, and we'll, we'll I'll assign them each point totals like we do for a top twenty-five poll. All right. And this will be the Miller and Dace, and then and we should put it on Hawkeye Nation next to the Athlons list, and yeah. let people decide which one they like better. Okay, that sounds good. Not okay. the, not the, not that we're not loading that up, but yeah, we're, we're already going to do. And, and Troy Davis will be online, so maybe I'll get downvoted by all Iowa fans. <laughs> all right, one more thing on here that's really cool is they have a list of the fifty biggest news stories of the last fifty years in college football. Number one, ESPN. The time, effort, money they poured into the sport at a time that uh, the antitrust uh, uh, caps on how many times you could be on television were. And the College Football Association was coming in in the early 80s, and more games are coming on TV. Mm-hmm. That's the, they're, they're the number one development, they think, in the last 50 years of college football. Scholarship developments are on here. Integration of the SEC. Um, overtime, the college football playoff is number s- six. Recruiting websites. You'll like this. The eighth biggest development of the last 50 years. Hmm. Recruiting websites. Hmm. The Bigger Ten is number 11. Uh, targeting, number 12. 
Curry, Big Ten Network is number 17. Targeting is number 12, and the Big yes. Ten Network is 17. Yes. Get the bleep out. Seriously. The Wishbone is number 18. Well, it's come and gone, but it was certainly a disruptive force for two decades. Let me give you one that's way underrated. That's number 27. The narrowing of the hash marks. Now, for, for boys and girls younger than us listening to this, there was a time that we had we had the wide side of the field in college football. And what ended up and and this is why the wishbone offense went out. It was the dominant offense in college football in the seventies. Well, in the sixties and the seventies. And then what happened is programs mainly Miami and Florida Miami and Florida State. What they started doing was they changed their defensive approach. If you go on YouTube and watch a lot of the old college football games from the 70s and 80s, when they announced the lineups, folks will notice they announced, and Iowa, I think, was the last team in the Big Ten that was running this defense. 5-2. It was called the old 5-2. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. I think Iowa, Brad Quast was your middle linebacker. I think you were the last team in the Big Ten to give up this defense when Brad Quast was there. Boy, how, I get credit for that poll. How about them apples? <laughs> that, okay. But uh, – this was five down linemen. The offensive, the outside linebackers were essentially extra ends. And the goal was to, to essentially clog up running lanes so your linebackers could, could stop the pitch man and the option. Well, what happened is the, the Florida State and Miami's, those schools, changed their defensive recruiting approach. And they went away from this 5-2, and they started to, because they couldn't muscle up. They'd go into these bowl games, and they could not muscle up against teams from the SEC or the old Big 8 who are running these wishbone offenses. And so what they did is they started having their um, safeties, they moved them down to linebacker. They moved their linebackers down to pure defensive ends. And so they tried to compensate for getting out-muscled by being faster and quicker. And with the wide side of the field, what they would do is they would put their fastest guys on the wide side of the field so that the, 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 the option teams would have to run to the near side of the field, and that way the boundary would act as an extra defender and they would bottle them in. This had a huge, and this changed the landscape of college football tremendously. And it's, it's no coincidence that, that when they moved the hash marks in several years ago to be more like the NFL is when you saw option football come back. Navy, Air Force, Army, running the triple options. Uh, the, the, old, the, the, the zone read is essentially the veer option in a shotgun. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that you saw the option come back when the hash marks were brought in because defenses couldn't stack that the wide side of the field now and dare you to run to the near side where they had the boundary as an extra defender. So there's a little college football history for the younger listeners that are wondering – you know, uh, why the hash marks should be on their list. How about EA Sports NCAA football is number 43? It was fun. Um, and I missed, I missed the game a lot, John. I yeah, missed it a lot. That was something that you and I would talk on the phone about. I mean, you used to send your memory card off to a guy that we wound up knowing. Um, yep. A guy from Iowa City who started a business by – Basically, loading your loading your memory card with every roster of every college football team, and and that was a lot of fun. And I, I haven't really played any PS3 or Xbox college or pro football game since. I used to love running the option with that game. That was a ton of fun. I miss it. I went. I for Christmas. And we could we could the, be playing that stuff against each other online now. I know. I for Christmas I bought the last version. That has that has Denard Robinson on the cover, the 2014 game, and this summer there are still places that that reproduce these rosters every year. I'm going to go online buy some updated rosters because my son Noah loves playing the older versions of this, mm-hmm. and with and I'm going to get the updated rosters and him and I are going to play this together this summer. But man, I miss that game terribly Hmm. Um, a couple of other quick things that are on here AstroTurf is on here the Notre Dame Broadcasting Company is on here Uh, I mentioned in college game day at 36 I think that's got to be higher than that don't you it's certainly deserving I don't know where to rank it because I don't have it all in front of me 
But um, th- those are those are all great things to bring up. Many things worthy. And what what an issue this year. What an it's issue. phenomenal. I mean, it's it is it is a great read. And if you've never bought one before, and particularly if you're if, if if you are in your if you are like what John and I were like in our twenties and thirties, where we just love studying the history of college football, um, and you're that age listening to this podcast, this issue will absolutely get you up to date because you know we're 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 becoming the Bob Dyers now, John. You know we used to laugh at Bob back in the day and yeah. telling the same stories over and over and over again. Yes. That, that's going to be us now, John. You realize that, right? I, I do realize that. And just like Bob at that time, I don't care what people think. Self-edification. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. That was a lot of fun. Um, I am going to go out and pick mine up very soon, mostly because of how uh, glowingly you've talked about it. So go out and do it. We make no money from it. Just pure recommendation. We'll be back at it next week talking about... Um, our top 50 greatest players in all time college football. Thank you for listening to the HM Podcast.